What a crazy week. To say the United States is united would be a joke in the minds of many Americans this week. If it isn't enough that President Trump lost the election recount in Georgia, and with a large-scale shift of power going to the Democratic Party, we also had a crazy assault on the U.S. Capitol building while the U.S. Senate was in session, resulting in five deaths. America is a bit on edge right now. Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 88th episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. Biblical detail, historical context that puts you in the action. So much mistrust, so much division, so many evil power plays that are in motion. And like a caldera spouting off the excess of built-up lava, one doesn't need to go far beneath the surface to see the numerous underpinning tensions in our country that have been brewing for years. But if we think things are tense here in the United States right now, we should take a look at the world Paul faced while he was doing his mission work. In today's episode, we see Paul settling himself in Corinth, whereby he befriends husband and wife team Aquila and Priscilla. They had recently relocated to Corinth after being expelled from Rome, along with thousands of other Jewish folks, and having to start life over. As Paul situates himself in his new surroundings, he once again discovers the tensions of what it's like to live in yet another city under the Roman Empire. So what happens when Paul starts his mission work in Corinth? Well, stick around to find out. And with that, let's get started. A small group of men huddled around Paul as they quickly whisk him out of the doors of the synagogue. From the side, a man pushes his way into the huddle. Back off, warns one of the men next to Paul. He pushes the younger man away and replies, This is no way to treat our guest. The man circles around the huddle to find an inn, while Paul wonders if the group around him is interested in what he has to say, or just a bunch of guys trying to protect him. As the Miles hostilities settle, the cadre of men walk out of the small courtyard and along a narrow road. As the men continue walking, they pass by an entryway to another courtyard apparently belonging to the man who happens to be standing there and watching the small group walk by. Paul looks up and catches the eyes of the man staring back at him. He nods, and the man steps out to greet him. Go back inside, Gentile, a voice yells out from behind. You're not one of us. The group of men turn around to identify the antagonist. Recognizing the troublemaker, one of the men from the group sighs and says, I'll deal with this. He leaves the group and grabs the younger adversary by the hair and drags him away. Paul and the homeowner stand there and observe the younger man scream out in obscenities as he gets dragged down the street and away from them. Nice boy, I'm sure, the homeowner offers. Paul chuckles, looks at the man standing next to him and says, Paul. The man reaches out to place a hand on Paul's shoulders and says, Titius. He then looks around and says, You've managed to stir up a bit of commotion here. Paul shrugs and softly laughs. Not my intent, I promise, he says. As the two continue to stare out at the commotion still happening some distance away, Titius replies, You know, I've been here for much of my life. 
For years, I have seen people come and go to peaceably worship in that synagogue. For the most part, I've come to admire these folks, and I have appreciated their unswerving devotion to their practice. I have even learned from the Torah, the prophets, and the writings from these devout people who have taken their time to explain them to me. Paul steps closer to listen in and nods his head. But, the man continues, I have never heard anything quite like what you have shared in there. He gestures over to the other men surrounding Paul, and, by the looks of it, neither have they. You were inside then, Paul says. I must have misseen you. Stumbling to find the right words, the man continues, I've come to appreciate the fire in the bellies of many of these Jews here. They are a passionate people. They take their worship seriously, so when I see them responding this way to a message coming from one of their own, it tells me that this is a hotbed issue. That it is, Paul affirms. How does anyone respond to the idea that they have rejected the very God they have sworn to worship? Some are bound to get angry at this message. It's really no different than how the prophets of old were treated. Yeah, exactly, Titius responds. I guess what I'm saying is that I'm intrigued. Anyone willing to step into a room like that and say what you have said? Well... I would like to better understand what you're advocating. So, I'm wondering, would you come and eat with us and better explain this stuff to us? Carefully approaching the man leaning against the column at the front of the Julian Basilica, the clerk announces his arrival by clearing his throat. My lord, he asks, shall I orient you to the forum? Gallio turns to see his administrative assistant who bows his head. He looks back towards the square and nods. The statue, he points to the massive bronze figure towering above the center of the forum and asks, The dedication to Tiberius Caesar, my lord? The clerk asks. Yes, certainly you know of the Augustalis in Rome. Well, they are alive and well here as well. Gallio looks at the clerk and asks, They are loyalists? Oh, yes, sir, the clerk responds proudly. Most are Roman citizens, and all understand the value of Roman leadership here in Corinth. The Augustalis will likely be some of your greatest allies here. The clerk looks out into the forum and points to the other side. That smaller statue in the far corner was provided by a benefactor whose origins are of neither Greek nor Roman nobility, a freedman who worked tirelessly and became quite rich here. He pauses to look back at Gallio. Many rags-to-riches stories have taken place along these very streets. Freedmen or descendants of freedmen have become magistrates here in Corinth, and all have governed by keeping economic opportunity in mind. You see, Corinth has thrived as an economic powerhouse since the Romans forced their way in some time ago. So Rome is seen in a positive light here. Well, for the most part, anyways. Then again... Corinth hasn't required active leadership from Rome and has gotten used to being self-governed, so don't be surprised if you see some resistance as well. Nodding, Gallio points to the left of the square. The rostra? he asks. Yes, my lord, the clerk hesitates. Though here in Achaia, you'll find most prefer to call it the Bema, my liege. Your addresses will be made from here, he then perks up. You just missed the games. Oh, Gallio asks. I trust they went well. Oh, they did, 
the clerk says while smiling. Yes, the Isthmian games continue to grow in international popularity. We easily had more than twice the amount of people in the city and thousands of outliers camping between here and Isthmia. Any trouble? Gallio asks. The clerk shakes his head. Nothing more than normal. All walks of society treading along the same streets while shopping and eating at the same places. There's bound to be some hiccups along the way. Changing the subject, he continues. The Italian contingent was fairly strong this year, my lord. The Italians. Gallio waves his arms dismissively and spits. Overinflated egos with marginal capacity. What are the Spaniards? Yes, my lord, the clerk responds, suddenly remembering his audience. You're not from Italy. Cordoba, yes? Gallio smiles. Focusing on threading a needle into a patch, Paul misses the man who walks up to the workspace. He startles upon hearing a voice. I thought I might find you here, the voice says. Though overcast, Paul squints as he tries to look up at the man. Sorry, he says. Sometimes these cloudy days seem brighter than the clear ones. The man looks up at the sky and then back at Paul. Sensitive eyes, eh? he asks. Yeah, I guess, Paul says. Linus, right? The man nods. Yes, it looks like you've acclimated yourself to this town in short order. Paul laughs and replies. I guess I'm somewhat used to it. How's business for you? Linus asks. With you and the Jews making a go of it in a new town, I suspect it's a bit slow moving. Paul stops sewing to take a moment to process. Yeah, a little, he says, now looking directly at the man standing in front of him. Hey, I know there are other tent makers here in Corinth, and with you being fairly well connected here, I'm curious how Linus finishes Paul's question. Are the other tent makers doing here? Well, Paul shrugs. Yeah. Quite well, my friend, Linus gushes. Quite well indeed. Hmm, Paul responds. Well, I guess the next question is, why you and your friends are not seeing your share of the business? Linus blurts out. <laughs> Yeah, Paul laughs. Corinth, Linus waves to the city around him and opines, is a metropolitan city, yes. It's a large city. He steps next to Paul and whispers in a hushed tone, but it's a tightly knit city. Okay, Paul says as he draws back from the man standing a little too close. We trust our own, Linus explains with a sweeping gesture. Lots of people coming and going, lots of hucksters who take advantage of others, so we like to be careful here. Paul nods with new understanding and says, I suspect you know a lot of the people here. Linus smiles and replies, I do. My family and I have been here in Corinth for well over a hundred years. Paul guesses. Which would make sense that you would offer your tour guide services at the city gates, you know, for newcomers like me. I know every in and out of the city, the Isthmus, and the Acrocorinth above, Linus announces. You're good at what you do, Paul praises. Yes, I am, Linus affirms. Do you have other business interests, Paul inquires. I would imagine that being a tour guide here and knowing every detailed part about the city and its people makes you quite the matchmaker. Linus ponders this for a moment. I have never quite put it that way, but yes, I do often make referrals. Paul nods and asks, well, that makes sense. So what does it take to receive a referral from you? Linus looks around at the pedestrian traffic picking up and sizes Paul up. 
Wiping his hand on his garment, he then responds in a measured tone, You see, it's a simple percentage of what you sell. As Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla make their way out from the synagogue and into the street, Aquila looks over at Paul and shakes his head. Wow, he says. Well, that was different. Paul looks back at Aquila and smirks. Pretty normal day for me, he says. Aquila looks back over his shoulder to see a number of men following them. He then looks over at Priscilla, who shrugs and asks, This is normal? The three continue to walk while looking behind to see what now appears to be a small crowd of men following. They come to a complete halt when Aquila bumps into a man they didn't see in front of them. Oof, Aquila says. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't. Interrupting the man looks over at Paul and says, Looks like you're winning over the crowd. Smiling back at the familiar face, Paul asks, Titius Justice, right? Titius smiles in return and responds, Why don't we go inside? Remember, you owe me a meal. He rushes them over to a doorway and says, I'll be right back. Make yourselves at home. The three stand at a corner inside the cavernous room, looking at one another and wondering what might be happening outside. The door finally opens as Titius walks in with three other men. What's happening out there? Paul asks. Nothing to fret about, Titius replies. Just some ill-tempered young men trying to find their way in the world. Paul looks over at one of the men by Titius' side, drops his jaw, and points. You, you, you are... The man smiles at Paul's effort to identify him and finishes Paul's sentence. Crispus, the synagogue chief, he says while firmly grasping onto Paul's shoulder. He continues... This is Stephanos, and this is Fortunas. You've said some bold, if not fiery, things these past few Sabbaths, both in our services and outside in the courtyards. Do you really think that approach has worked? Caught off guard with the question, Paul thinks for a moment, smiles, and finally responds, Oh, I don't know. We're here eating a meal in this man's house and about to talk further, aren't we? The three men look at each other and smile. Crispus then assesses the room before looking back at Paul and says, Yes, yes we are. Well, we're going to stop here for today. Paul is getting settled in Corinth, or at least as settled as Paul gets. He finds a place to both live and work with Aquila and Priscilla, and he establishes his ministry with regular teaching times in and out of a local synagogue. Like many Greek and Roman cities, synagogues are filled with both Jews and Jewish converts alike. Whereas many of the early church believers had Jewish lineages, Paul discovered that the further he moved away from Jerusalem, the more he saw a change in this demographic. Many here in the Corinthian synagogue would have either been Jewish converts with Gentile backgrounds or Jewish refugees who had recently made their way here from Rome. Yes, there were birthright Jews here as well, but the makeup of this synagogue would have felt much different than, say, a synagogue in Antioch, Thessalonica, or especially Jerusalem. That said, there are other demographic divisions happening here in Corinth, which Rome regarded as a colony with special perks to consider as well. For example, those who were slaves versus those who were free. Those who were military veterans versus those who were of aristocratic or the ruling class. Those who were full-fledged citizens of Rome or those who were not. By the way, 
While 70% of those from Italy were Roman citizens by birth, Corinth would have had a much smaller percentage. Here in Corinth, nearly 30% of its citizenry were slaves, and even fewer were Roman citizens. By this time in AD 51, the Roman Empire had grown to about 55 to 65 million people, with approximately 5 million classified as Roman citizens. Less than 5% of the outlying regions, such as modern-day Turkey, Syria, or Israel, would have been made up of Roman citizens. On another side note, mortality rates were high in comparison to today. Half of those born would not make it past their first birthdays in the Roman Empire. To say the least, freedom and equality as we have come to experience here in 21st century United States was not understood or even conceived of within the Roman Empire. So where am I going with this? I, I just want to camp here for a little bit. Paul, who enjoyed the perks of full Roman citizenship by birthright, which hints at a more aristocratic upbringing, especially since he was raised far away from Rome or Italy, used his Roman citizenship to further advance the kingdom of heaven and to gain audiences from high-profile men and councils that would have never otherwise given him the time of day. Then again, Jesus promised Paul that this would be the case. Shortly after interrupting Paul's day, he was headed to Damascus with his police escort to arrest a bunch of Jesus followers. Jesus blinded Paul and shortly afterwards gave Ananias, a local follower of Jesus in Damascus, instruction to support Paul during this time of need. Luke later records this interaction. Here's what he said. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's Acts chapter 9, 13 through 16. Jesus did not intend to let Paul sit idly by and enjoy the perks of his citizenship or his aristocratic upbringing. Nope, Jesus intended to use Paul's privileged access and training as an attorney to bring forth the kingdom of heaven. Remember the moment when Paul was questioning a Roman commanding officer in Acts 22? God used Paul's citizenship card to place him in front of an audience of people that would have never otherwise given him the time of day. Let's listen in to that exchange. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him in that way. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to whip a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, well, I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him 
immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had just put a Roman citizen in chains. Acts chapter 22, 24 through 29. Paul was well aware of his special privileges as a Roman citizen, but he rarely played that card, only in instances where he would gain an audience of those in authority. What was Paul's attitude towards his citizenship and his well-to-do upbringing and training? Without a doubt, Paul used his background to get him into places and in front of people. However, his goal was not to build himself up, but to move the kingdom of heaven forward. Here's what Paul says to those in Philippi. I once thought these things were valuable, his training, his upbringing, his privilege, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. That's Philippians 3, 7 through 8, and then later on in 20 and 21. What does Paul focus on here? His focus is not on preserving his rights as a Roman citizen, though he uses his special privileges to advance the kingdom of heaven. Paul's one and only aim is to bring the good news about the kingdom of heaven in front of as many people, people from all walks of life, as he can. Later to the Corinthian believers and others, Paul addresses how they should live given the restricting circumstances they find themselves in. 1 Corinthians 7.21-24 says this, Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to also become free, of course take advantage of that opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of the world and what the world values. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition with which he was called. Here's Paul's point. Wherever you may find yourself in society structures, Jesus has purchased you with his life-giving sacrifice. And now you are a bondservant, a volunteer slave to Jesus himself. Your life mission as a slave to Christ is to further the kingdom of heaven. And so let's break it down into these four different possibilities. To the slave, there is freedom in Christ. Your citizenship is truly in heaven and the joy that comes with the kingdom of heaven. You belong to Jesus. To the freed person, even though you've gained your new freedom from slavery, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, you belong to Jesus and need to spend your freely given time dedicated to the one who has purchased you. To the poor, the kingdom of heaven is seen with much greater clarity. How so? Because for you, this world has little to offer. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain with the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.3 talks about that. 
into the aristocrat or the ruling party, you're here to generously shower the goodness that pours out from the kingdom of heaven to others by giving much and being reminded that what you have was given to you. Here's what Paul writes to one of his closest followers. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. That's 1 Timothy 6, 17-18. True life, as God has designed it, is made visible when others see the kingdom of heaven through our efforts. And what we see here is only a glimpse of what is yet to come. So let's wrap it up. That's really what we're talking about this week. Regardless to your stature, your social position, your wealth, your citizenship rights, may God use you to show the kingdom of heaven, which is an all-encompassing reflection of God's goodness into the lives of others. That is why God has bought you at the price that he has bought you. With that... Let's move forward together.